You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell and the Forgotten Victims. So for the last few weeks, I've been dropping episodes on the Domestic Abuse Act and serial domestic abusers and stalkers because I wanted you to hear developments in real time about this important piece of legislation and my campaign work. I want you to understand all the important work that I do as a crime analyst, as much of my work is about learning and intervention and prevention. It's not just about deconstructing cases and telling stories. It's about saving lives, which is what makes my work different to most. I'm an analyst, advocate and campaigner, and I use my professional and personal experiences to create real change to better protect future victims. Creating change and a legacy is so important to me as I look at early identification, intervention and prevention opportunities in every case that I work, every time I speak with a victim and every time I reinvestigate a case. And I can assure you that throughout the last few weeks, my reinvestigation has been ongoing. I've never stopped and I've discovered some startling findings following on from episode 16, where I discuss the Byford reports, conclusions and recommendations. And I have to be honest, I'm still reeling from what I unearthed. Now, before we go deep, deep, because we will in this episode, I want to give you the usual health warning that the content and information you're going to hear may be triggering or upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. You're going to hear about real victims, real cases, real perpetrators and their behaviour at real crime scenes. And there are going to be some graphic details throughout this podcast series. Unfortunately, it comes with the territory. Murder is distressing. Victims being killed and harmed is a truly terrible business. Okay, so you'll recall I left off in episode 16 talking about the Byford Report, the conclusions and recommendations, those that were shared with Parliament and published. And remember, it was only the recommendations that were initially shared. And I read out what those recommendations were, 
which in my opinion were narrowly focused on logistical matters such as computers rather than the culture, attitude, leadership and basic investigative errors that resulted in more women being murdered by PS. Focusing on developing a new computer system and single points of contact are tangible things that people can say, oh yes, we learned from the investigation into PS because a new computer database, Homes, was rolled out. And Spock, single points of contact were also introduced in major inquiries and therefore, job done. Focus on the future and the lessons to be learned, they said, rather than dwelling on the past. Tick that box and everyone moves on. Except the victims, the survivors, the families and all those impacted. And it's easy for stories to be retold through the lens of a review particularly when the review isn't published, and so no one can say otherwise. And I think that's the key point. One just has to agree with the summary findings and trust the process without an alternative narrative. However, the lack of transparency and accountability is what I keep bumping on, and I keep coming back to it, as it just doesn't sit right. You see, Lord Byford started off with the aim of looking at, and I quote, where the police have been responsible for serious errors of judgment, negligence or indifference of carelessness, then this too has been highlighted. Not surprisingly, the limitations in the police investigation take up a greater part of my report than do the lessons for the future. Yet when he finishes his report, he's much more focused on the lessons to be learned and future-looking. And I can't help but wonder, as is my curious mind, what was in the report that was so damning that Lord Byford, having first made the case for the report to be shared, particularly given that it was paid for by taxpayers' money, later took a back step and said that publishing the report would, and I quote be dangerous to the morale of West Yorkshire Police and the police service and the Home Secretary, who had been so helpful to the service generally. What did he mean by that? And what exactly was in the report? For me, it's the limitations of the investigation, which, as he said, took up most of his report, that should have been the focus. That's where the true learning is, right? It sounds somewhat cliched, but in my life experience, it's always in the most uncomfortable moments that real growth and learning occurs. However, it appears that the men in charge deemed the morale of the police service to be more important than promulgating the true learning and to honour the women who were killed and attacked to ensure that this never, ever happened again. That tells me everything. Of course, back then, Lord Byford, Chief Constable Gregory and the Home Secretary Whitelaw controlled who saw the report and the narrative. And that was that. But I've had a continuing, growing feeling of disquiet and uneasiness. A growing, niggling sensation that won't be silenced. I believe there's much more that they were guarding and wanted to stay hidden and buried. And I've had that growing sense and belief that it's not just solely to do with the other linked offences, the section withheld in the Byford report. And so in this episode, I'm going to share with you what I believe was going on. You see, I've made an alarming discovery. 
Yes, even more alarming than all the others. And I bet you didn't think that was possible. But like I said, a few things have been niggling away at me throughout my research and analysis. Some things I've already highlighted or given a nod to. But as I've continued piecing the narrative together, trying to make sense of each crime and also of the investigation itself, I find myself keep coming back to the same questions and the same thoughts. Now on their own, they may not amount to too much, but when you put them together, well, a picture starts to emerge, a picture that is deeply troubling and one where more investigative inquiry and questions have needed to be asked. And I want to explain my thinking and process to you too, and I'm throwing it out there now. It's not a linear process. But before I tell you about that, I want to circle back to Lord Byford's comment about serial killers being cute, in inverted commas, which is what he said, and I played that clip in episode 16. Do you remember? You see, that's one of the things, amongst a sea of others, that raised a red flag. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island, where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Lord Byford said that serial killers can be cute, which is why they avoid early detection by the police. Of course, given that he says this, and he's talking about the Byford inquiry, that's the context, one naturally then makes the connection that he's talking about P.S. And therefore, the comment feels wildly out of place to me and is concerning, particularly in the context of all that I've uncovered thus far, which paints a very different narrative to this one. I've been ruminating about it. Was this an intentional sleight of hand? Was it deliberate? Well, perhaps. I can't say what was in his mind at the time when he said it. But what I will say is that, in my opinion, it was wildly off the mark in this case, nor does it apply in many other cases. Let me explain. This comment plays into the myth that serial killers are evil geniuses who outsmart and outwit the police. And some of those exist. They're the ones that we haven't caught yet. They're the ones who outsmart and outwit the police. And perhaps that was the intention. It distracts us and it means that we fail to ask the difficult questions about early identification, intervention and prevention. It also has a dual purpose. It means the police are seen as heroes by the families and the public 
when the perpetrators are caught. Just think about the press conference when P.S. was arrested. The smiles, the smug faces, the comment, we're delighted. And when the chief constable was asked if he had a Geordie accent, he dodges the question. The relief that the killer had been caught after all those years was huge. So huge that no one noticed the lack of empathy and compassion for the victims and their families. It had become much more about the police than it was about preventing more murders and keeping women safe, in my opinion. And you see, then no one asks any more questions until the trial. And even then, the most senior lawyer in the land, Sir Michael Havers, accepted a plea deal, which would have meant that no questions would have been asked at all if it weren't for the judge stepping in. Thank goodness he did. And when questions are asked, they're not questions about early identification, intervention and prevention. They're not the questions I would have asked having run the Homicide Prevention Unit at New Scotland Yard, and I'm always looking for opportunities to improve and learn, to get one step ahead of the perpetrators in the future. And there's a lot more I could say about that, but I want to stay on track here. What Lord Byford said about serial killers being cute and others taking their cue from him, that has left a lasting legacy. Well, how, I hear you ask? Good question. Let me tell you. Let's fast forward to December 2020, when Netflix premiered their show about this case with the horrific title, which I won't name, the name that was changed at last minute and families asked them not to use the Yorkshire R word. You know the one I'm talking about. You see, there was a trailer and there was something in the trailer and it wasn't just the title that immediately got my back up. Have a listen now. I've given you a few clues already. Now it's time for you to put your crime analyst skills to the test. Let me know if you spot it. One of the most cunning killers they've ever had to trace. Could I have done more? Should I have done more? Police are investigating the discovery of a woman's body. 28-year-old Wilma McCann. People read in the newspaper that prostitutes being killed, they shrug and move on. It was desperate times. It just seemed to be a one-off murder. Another body was found. This was the ultimate crime against women. They had a similar type of injuries to a legendary Victorian killer. The so-called York. The police inferred if you were not a prostitute, then you were fine. Has struck again. Unlike the previous victims, she was no prostitute. My God. Any woman was at risk. This murder changed everything. The anger was now at boiling point. Five years is too long. If they haven't caught him yet, I don't think they ever will. He had successfully hoodwinked an entire police force. The police were actually excluding evidence. You cannot conceive of what it was like. I'm the I thought they will never catch him. Never. Ever. He controlled us all. He was the last person in the world that you have suspected. Did you hear it? 
right at the start, the words, one of the most cunning killers they've ever had to trace. One of the most cunning killers. Seriously? Are any of you listening to this series now buying into that narrative? You see, that's exactly what I'm talking about. This is a false forensic narrative that's been created that gives undeserving credit to a killer that's totally unwarranted. And of course, as previously mentioned, it's a dual device, as it gives the police credit because PS was caught. Against all odds. That's the inference, right? And it also lets the police off the hook in terms of questioning them about what really went on. Because they're heralded as the heroes because they caught him. It's one sentence, but it's right at the start and it sets the tone. And it leapt out at me immediately because it's the wrong one entirely. And there are two more standout moments for me. Here's another one. It was desperate times. It just seemed to be a one-off murder. Okay, so that tells us about context. Things were bad at that time. So the underwritten messages, so you can kind of understand men being driven to kill. And that it seemed to be a one-off murder. Hence something that's unique and that has happened. But we know there were multiple women who were hit over the back of the head who reported that they had been attacked and they were dismissed. And then more and more women were being killed in the same way. And so it clearly wasn't a one-off. And they weren't asking questions right at the start when it happened. Oh, because it was desperate times. So you can understand women being brutally murdered in desperate times. And then right at the end of the trailer, did you notice anything else? He controlled us all. He was the last person in the world that you suspected. Well, he controlled us all. Yes, no truer words have been spoken. He controlled everyone. And that was his intention. And then Jim Hobson says, he was the last person in the world that you'd have suspected. Well, he was the last person that they, the police, would ever have suspected. Yes, that much is true. Senior male police officers and the media created a false mythological character because they used a moniker that gave a false impression and profile of who the killer was and who he was targeting. And they were chasing a man with a Geordie accent. So yes, it's accurate to say that he did not fit their profile in any way, shape or form because their profile was widely off the mark. And many of you have been asking for it, and I am going to do it. I'm going to break down the full psychological autopsy and profile of PS very soon in a later episode, because we don't put the cart before the horse. That comes later. And so 40 years on, some are still trying to say that PS was a cunning killer, and that's why he wasn't caught, compounded by the fact that the police were overwhelmed with information and that has been the dominant narrative for a long time in the absence of any other. You see, the full Byford report was sent to the National Archive with a note on the file that the report must not be released until the 1st of January 2045. You heard that right, 2045. Furthermore, the day PS was sentenced, and in parallel to the Byford report, Chief Constable Ronald Gregory commissioned an internal review, which was called the Samson Review, 
which was conducted by Deputy Chief Constable of Nottinghamshire Constabulary Colin Sampson. Mr Sampson's report details a catalogue of police misjudgments and mistakes during the five-year inquiry. An internal West Yorkshire inquiry made further criticisms 18 months later. How detectives ignored early photo-fit descriptions, how attacks were wrongly assessed, and how the whole administration of the inquiry was below standard. So there's a couple of things to highlight here. Firstly, did you hear how it's referenced as a five-year inquiry? And you might have heard that in the Netflix trailer too, because it was said there as well. In fact, it's in most media reports about the case. Again, that's something else that has stuck. Yet it's simply not true. But I guess five years doesn't sound quite as bad as 11 years, does it? You see, we know that PS was offending from at least 1969 onwards, and certainly from 1972, there was an attack on the unnamed 19-year-old typist, and she gave a very clear photo fit, which certainly looks like him. So that's at least nine years. Here's another example from a BBC 2016 podcast called The Reunion. It all started in West Yorkshire on the 30th of October, 1975. This is BBC Radio Leeds. Good morning. Police are investigating the discovery of a woman's body on a playing field in the Chapeltown district of Leeds. You see, if you say something enough times and with conviction, people believe it's true and just repeat it. No one knew about all the other offences prior to 1975, and therefore almost every reporter, storyteller and podcaster who covers this case starts with the October 29th, 1975 date and Wilma McCann's murder. But no doubt you're thinking that with two reviews being undertaken, surely the lessons will be learned, right? And particularly as the Sampson review was undertaken by Deputy Chief Constable Colin Sampson, who was from another police force. Well, yes, it's an external police force, but Deputy Chief Constable Colin Sampson was junior in rank to Chief Constable Ronald Gregory, and he was working and reporting to Chief Constable Ronald Gregory. And so I'm not entirely sure we can be confident about its contents. And secondly, in my experience, officers at this rank tend to all know each other. And so it begs the question, why and how was DCC Sampson selected for this review? On what criteria was the post advertised or was it done as a favour and part of the jobs for the boys culture? And I don't have the answer to any of those questions. You can make of it what you will. Also, the title of the Sampson Report is worthy of note. Report into the investigation of the series of murders and assaults on women in the north of England between 1975 and 1980. Now, noticeably, there's an absence of P.S.'s name being mentioned, which is strange, as this review was supposed to be about him. Again, this is how perpetrators are removed from the narrative at a conscious and subconscious level and therefore removed from the conversation. Also, the report only focused on five years, between 1975 to 1980. So there's the five years again, creating a false impression as well as missing all the other learning opportunities regarding other potentially linked offences as well as opportunities to identify PS far earlier. In my opinion, the terms of reference should have been between 1969 to 1980. 
Deputy Chief Constable Sampson's report did acknowledge the immense pressure that West Yorkshire Police were under, and Deputy Chief Constable Sampson stated more explicitly that the aim of his report was not to determine individual culpability, but to learn lessons for the future. There it is again. As I've said before in previous episodes, my special report, episode 12 in particular, this is the most overutilised phrase in policing. It's so easy to say it, and it sounds admirable and honourable, yet it's so much harder to actually deliver on. As I've said before, how do you really ensure that the lessons are learned across an entire police service, particularly if no one else gets to read the report and the review? Who determines what the lessons are and what qualifies them to draw those conclusions? Who ratifies the findings? How does one know that the learning has been implemented? How does one check over time whether it's effective? I could go on, but I won't. I think you get the flavour. So whereas the Byford report was more UK-focused, the scope of the Samson review was limited to the incident room and was intended to provide West Yorkshire Police with practical recommendations that could be implemented immediately. And so the intention appears to be a good thing. And although the depth of the reviews varied, the Byford and Samson reports largely reflected each other regarding the flaws of the investigation. Where they differed was that the Sampson Review concluded that at least six murders could have been prevented rather than three in the Byford Report and stated that West Yorkshire Police missed every sign that led to PS. Well, that was accurate, as yes, they did. But I believe that they could have prevented far more murders than that. And also I want to share with you the last paragraph of the Sampson Review, which stated this. Officers involved in reviewing this force's performance in connection with the inquiry recognised throughout that they were working with the benefit of perception after the event and the advantage derived from that knowledge is aptly summarised by the following quotation. We are conscious that historians are much better generals than those charged with the task of fighting battles, so you will be subject to the ministrations of the armchair theorists. We can only hope that with the luxury of hindsight, they may adopt an attitude of seeking to learn from any mistakes made rather than seek to apportion blame. What do you make of that? It's an interesting quote to end on, isn't it? And again, for me, I'm all about learning the lessons. And I don't think any review should be about attributing blame per se. But as I've said many times, there has to be accountability. And talking of accountability, Chief Constable Ronald Gregory declined to publish the Sampson Review. Interestingly, he cited concerns around prejudicing further inquiries and operational matters. Interesting, and I've more to say about the Sampson Review and Chief Constable Gregory in my next episode. Right now, I want to circle back to the other review that I've already talked about in episode 15, Detective Chief Superintendent John DeMarle's review of the other potentially linked offences. You see, I did some more research about his review, as there were a few things that were niggling away at me, and I want to share with you what I found. Firstly, Detective Chief Superintendent DeMarle was appointed as the head of a new super unit by Chief Constable Gregory. They were called the Special Homicide Investigation Team. And those of you whose brains are already running ahead, you've already worked out the acronym, no doubt. 
You guessed it. They were also known locally as the Shit Squad. The police just love a good acronym. In fact, I remember when I first joined New Scotland Yard, I was so puzzled and confused because every conversation seemed to be reduced to three letters and three letters multiple times, like the whole conversation could just be in three or four letters. And the police still speak like that now. Well, now I work across the world, I always say to people, please explain what those three or four letters mean, because it can mean something very different in a different police force in a different area or a different country. But going back to this, I would imagine that the shit team, as they were known, was probably the source of much amusement, particularly as it was a newly formed shiny team headed by an outsider, Detective Chief Superintendent DeMarle, had been handpicked by the chief constable and he had joined West Yorkshire Police some years earlier from Devon and Cornwall Police. Now, you might recall that he was the SIO, the senior investigating officer, in Yvonne Pearson's case and that he was acting in Assistant Chief Constable Oldfield's place when he was taken ill. Well, what stood out to me was that he was also cut out of the decision to eliminate suspects on handwriting and accent, a decision made by... ACC Oldfield and Detective Superintendent Holland, and that piqued my interest. I kept coming back to the question, well, why did they cut him out of that decision? Well, a picture is beginning to emerge, one where they didn't like outsiders, and there's talk of personality clashes as well. And that on its own can be so harmful and counterproductive to an investigation and good policing. You see, I also found out that Detective Chief Superintendent DeMarle was highly motivated on this investigation because his daughter was a trainee nurse at Leeds Infirmary and shared a flat with another nurse in Chapeltown, Chapeltown being a hotspot. Well, I mentioned before, Detective Chief Superintendent DeMarle was tasked with reviewing the whole investigation, and I can only imagine how that went down, having run the Homicide Prevention Unit at New Scotland Yard and reviewed many murders, you weren't always welcomed by everyone with open arms. Well, as I said before, it was his team who linked many more attacks, including Anna Rajolski, Olive Smelt, Maureen Long and Marilyn Moore. However, they didn't link the 19-year-old typist Tracy Brown or Marcella Claxton. Well, I didn't know that they had linked these cases through Detective Chief Superintendent DeMarle's review before, so that's news to me. And when you link more crimes, it potentially gives you more opportunities to identify the perpetrator, and that's always a good thing. Because there was more information in particular about the killer, and all of these women survived which again is another very good thing. The fact that they had living witnesses who saw and heard him speak. Well, I also discovered that there were some key things that the police held back from the media and the public at the time. Now, it's no surprise to me that some things were held back. Of course, there are operational and investigative sensitivities at times, and it can be the right thing to withhold information, particularly if it's helpful once someone has been arrested. However, one of the things that senior officers consciously took a decision to hold back has literally blown my mind and left me lost for words. Take a listen to this. The team of 12 elite detectives was appointed to review the investigation and to establish which attacks should be attributed to... The purpose of my visit here today is to go right through this series of so-called assaults and murders... It was headed by John DeMail. I shall see if I can find 
something that has perhaps been overlooked before. Now, at the press conference, the phrase novel methods of inquiry was used. Could you enlighten us on what that means? I could, clearly, but I don't wish to. John DeMille, what were some of the things that you weren't telling the press at the time? Well, in any murder inquiry, the police keep certain things to themselves. One of the reasons is that people come forward and say they're the person. And by knowing things that was not been given out, we can eliminate them from the inquiry very easily. There was so much information, a lot of facets of the inquiry, like the tyre marks, generated 50,000 inquiries on their own. The public didn't know about the tyre marks, did they? Because that was a distinctive clue to who the killer might have been. Yeah, so if I was the murderer, I'd immediately change my tyres. And the same thing with regard to the beard. Many reports of a killer who, who was bearded. Yeah, but there was a great deal of discussion, and that's a kind word to use, between myself and George Oldfield with regard to whether this should be put to the public. And a view on that was that you immediately put it to the public, you shave off his beard, so you then don't know what you're looking for. Krista Aykroyd. I was a woman working on the job, walking on the streets, talking mm. to prostitutes. Mm. That I was only 19 years old, feeling very vulnerable. Mm. I would have liked to know what I was looking for too. Despite all of the descriptions and the photo fits from surviving victims... And despite all the reports about the killer being a bearded man, it's now clear to me for the very first time that they actually knew that information and they withheld it. It wasn't the case that they hadn't linked the crimes and therefore hadn't compared the photo fits, which is bad enough in itself, given how local these attempted murders and murders were, as well as the victimology and the modus operandi. But to find out now that they had linked some of the offences and they took a conscious decision not to put his description out into the public domain via the media. That's just staggering to me. The photo fits were so similar, strikingly so, and it's been niggling away at me. Why didn't someone call him in when they saw the photo fits? And that's been a standout point to me, a big red flag. And it also struck me as odd that P.S. didn't change his appearance at all throughout the 11-plus years he was offending, yet he was so distinctive-looking. But he still didn't change his appearance, even when he was interviewed by the police. That was doubly confounding to me and kept niggling away. Well, he didn't need to change his appearance because he wasn't concerned. And I had to ask the question, well, why wouldn't he be concerned? Well, it's now obvious, really, for the simple reason that the police never put out all the photo fits into the public domain, and so therefore there was nothing for him to be concerned about. And what's somehow worse, if it can get any worse, they didn't circulate the photo fits amongst police colleagues either. Police colleagues within their own police force those out on the streets making inquiries, talking to prostitutes in the red light districts, those stopping vehicles in the red light district. I mean, Christ alive. I've wondered about this the whole way through the series, and I talked about it in episode 4 and 16 specifically. I queried whether the photo fits had been widely circulated in numerous episodes, and it just kept coming back to me. The fact that the photo fits were so good and they weren't popping for anyone with all these other potential offences and the fact that P.S. didn't change his appearance at all. Well, now I know. 
It's been confirmed in their own words, and you heard it too. They were never circulated. The West Yorkshire police sat on the descriptions so he didn't shave his beard off. I just can't believe it. Yes, a suspect can alter their appearance. Of course they can. But when the description is all that you have, and a killer who is as prolific as he was, who is brutally attacking women and wiping them off the face of the earth and putting the whole community in fear, what choice do you have? For crying out loud, what was the point of taking the time and effort and energy to even do the photo fits when you're not even prepared to put out a full description of the attacker? And damn, these photo fits were so alike. You see, I didn't realise just how alike they all were before embarking on this deep dive. And you've all been remarking on them too on social media. You've all been shocked when I've posted them side by side as I came across them. I have to say that I'm confident that had they have been widely circulated at the time, someone would have called him in. A neighbour, a work colleague, someone. And the public had a right to know. Women had a right to be forewarned about what he looked like. Perhaps Wilma, Irene, Patricia and all the women who got in a car with him wouldn't have. And so I'm truly blown away to learn this. I mean, P.S. literally looked identical from 1969 until the time he was arrested in 1981. And I made comment about that on social media. It's eerie and it's chilling. And I couldn't move off that point. But it only becomes obvious once you see the photo fits. And from the way it's being represented and characterised in documentaries, the insinuation is that they hadn't seen those photo fits side by side. But some of the detectives quite clearly had. And yet they took a decision not to put them into the public domain. And what's more, none of the other police colleagues knew the description of the killer or about the photo fits either. That's why the detectives interviewing him didn't recognise him or twig. And I wondered about that too. Well, we know that Detective Sergeant Andrew Latchew had seen Marilyn Moore's photo fit and he was struck by how similar PS looked to it. But when he wrote his report and brought it up to Detective Chief Superintendent Holland, he was told, in inverted commas, if anyone mentions the photo fits to me again, they'll be going back to traffic. And I also noted that there were missing pages from the Byford report to do with those police interviews. Is that what those missing pages relates to, or is there something else? Now, I've an ongoing FOIA request, Freedom of Information Act request, and I've been told by the Home Office that they get back to me on May the 26th, and I'm intrigued to know whether they'll release that information to me. Time will tell. And so everyone was in the dark due to this decision. Women, the public, and even the police. Even the police hunting him and in the same police force were working blind. And so too were other police services. It makes sense now why police officers in West Yorkshire Police and other forces didn't flag up other potential offences. And now this section of the Byford report that has been redacted makes total sense too. The section under the heading, Descriptions, Photo Fits and Other Offences, which was never published. I wondered why this section was grouped together thematically first off. Having written hundreds of police reports and reviews, I couldn't understand why this would be under one section. 
Why redact the section on the descriptions and the photo fits? That seems strange to me. In one sense, I could understand why they held back other potential offences, as so many were missed, and perhaps they were concerned about potential litigation and or also to protect the victims and ensure anonymity. But now I don't think that's why this section was grouped together thematically and was intentionally redacted. I also discovered that Marcella Claxton's photo fit wasn't circulated in the media either, and that was a decision taken by Detective Chief Superintendent Jim Hobson, who investigated her case. He apparently dismissed the photo fit and said it wasn't necessarily the attacker, and he also dismissed the fact that she said he was in a red car. In fact, Detective Chief Superintendent Jim Hobson decided to give his own description of the suspect to the media, minus the photo fit which didn't include the moustache or beard. Marcella's actual photo fit was kept in a confidential police folder and was never released. And yet her photo fit was very accurate indeed. And now the final recommendation in the Byford report about the police and the media makes sense to me. You see, this recommendation in particular stood out and I wasn't sure where it came from or what exactly it related to. I couldn't track it back to its origin. It was the last recommendation made. Here's a reminder of what it was. Number eight, police and media. The public are entitled to accurate information about serious crime from the media. The police need to understand that they have a positive duty to assist the media to report and comment responsibly and should make appropriate arrangements to this end. Now, I believe that this is what they were trying to protect all along, as this was and is the major failing. And it is and was basic police work. From Detective Chief Superintendent DeMarle's mouth himself, he said that they had a good description of the killer, but they consciously decided not to share it with anyone. All this time, I thought it was the other attacks that they were protecting. And yes, they're still holding that back when there's no need All victims want answers to what happened, and so I don't believe it's right to withhold this information. But it's clear to me now the significance of the photo fits and description section. It's unprecedented in an inquiry of this nature, or any inquiry, to withhold the suspect's description. It's a major public protection issue. And they created a false narrative. They omitted it so it never existed in the zeitgeist, so no one knew. So to my process... It wasn't just one thing that kept coming back to me, it was multiple. On their own, they may not seem that significant, but together they are. And as I said, and now I know, the answers to those questions bothers me even more. But it does make a lot of this make sense now. And bear in mind, Chief Constable Gregory, Assistant Chief Constable Oldfield and Detective Chief Superintendent Holland were aware of this. Well, certainly Assistant Chief Constable Oldfield was aware, as Detective Chief Superintendent DeMarle said they had words about it. And every time I think I have found all there is to say about this case, I find something else. That nagging feeling, though, the gut instinct that keeps coming back, consciously and subconsciously, I never ignore it. I write it all down, I mind map, I write myself questions, I scribble down my thoughts on post-it notes, books and legal pads. Whatever time it happens and whenever it happens, most of my mind maps other people can't make head nor tail of, but I can. 
And then my brain works its magic. I trust the process. I tend to join things up more subconsciously over time. And so having had time to reflect, it can be really helpful for me. And then I have the light bulb moment. It's how I've always worked. And I'm telling you my process, of course, in crime analyst as I go along. And having followed my instinct right from the start of this series and flagged up some major concerns in each episode, but in particular episode four, where I talked specifically about the photo fits and the geography and the MO, I've kept asking questions since and circling back to the things that just didn't sit right. Trusting the process. I know things may make sense later on, and that perhaps sounds odd to say, but a piece of information may not be relevant until much later on, for example. And I want to also thank you, my lovely listeners, for emailing and messaging me about key aspects of the case or signposting me to the reunion podcast, for example, where I heard officers like Detective Chief Superintendent DeMarle in his own words, which I hadn't heard before. So thank you for that. Keep the information and recommendations coming, please. And so even though there's been a few weeks where an episode hasn't dropped on this series, I've continued to dig and piece lots of disparate things together behind the scenes, and a new picture and narrative has emerged, one that makes so many aspects of this case make sense. And like I said, not in a good way. So now you can make a much better determination about whether P.S. was a cute serial killer who outsmarted the police, the most cunning of killers that they ever had to trace. And that's not all. There's still more to come. So join me back in the intelligence cell next week. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrood.